I won a bet one time because I was like, I bet you that band is going to do working class blues for their sound check song. Because my dad's a musician. He's like, that's what every band does. They do working, uh, working man blues. It's a really good sound check song for gig work. And I was right. <laughs> so I wonder what the podcast like working man blues is. It's probably, are we recording? Are we, are we recording? Are we recording? Are we recording? Can you hear me? How are my levels? <laughs> are we recording? I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. Uh, I'm a sysadmin at a public library. My pronouns are she and they. I'm Jay. I'm an academic metadata librarian, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Carrie. I'm a health sciences librarian, and my pronouns are she, her. And we have a guest, returning guest. I'm Sam. I'm an academic librarian in Canada, and my pronouns are he, him. Do we force a catchphrase upon Sam too? Yeah, we gotta find your catchphrase. <laughs> Repeat guest rule. This is what I expect from this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> we forced one upon Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> yes, another quest for a perfect catchphrase. I can feel it in my bones. To be forever enshrined in a drop. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be our white whale today. <laughs> So, there's a lot to talk about, so we're going to skip the segment, because there is discourse happening. I should have had a horse neigh. I wonder if I can... I'll put one in post. It's a discourse. (laughs) I gotta save that clip. Yeah. I try not to make drops out of carry all the time. You're the worst host. I feel like it would be rude. But anyway... We are gathered here today to discourse about, well, what did happen? We're talking about uh, intellectual freedom, hashtag no steppy. And there was some intellectual freedom tomfoolery going on in uh, the the Queen's Dominion of Canada. So, uh, Sam, what happened exactly? So for the last, uh, I don't know, several months, um, there have been efforts to challenge Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage book in a few Canadian libraries. The most notable one was in Halifax Public Library on the East Coast, where I can't remember all the details now, but I think they were successful in challenging the book and having it removed from the collection. But there have been you know, challenges in public libraries across the, the country. 
And the Canadian Federation of Library Associations, which is what we sort of have in place of a national association, came out with a statement, you know, backing up libraries who were holding firm on not giving in to challenges to uh, exclude the book from um, collections. So as usual, whenever the CFLA intellectual freedom uh, statements come out, uh, a bunch of us, a lot of people got criticized it on the grounds that they were very selective. They haven't moved their intellectual freedom position in decades. Um, they continue to hold to the same old arguments. It's exactly the same as with the Office of Intellectual Freedom in the U.S. But Lindsay McCallum, who's a librarian um, also in the East Coast, I think, had found that the CFLA over the last five years has only ever put out statements about intellectual freedom supporting anti-trans speakers and books. So uh, one of the things that we kind of all cottoned onto was just that sort of selectivity piece that um, they don't weigh in on any other intellectual freedom challenges except if they're supporting trans music speakers, trans music books, that kind of thing. And so that was really where it all got started. And could you explain transmesic? I don't think that's commonly used. No, I don't remember where I first came across it, um, but certainly in kind of the, the, the discourse around disability, really, there's been a push to try to you kind of get away from the language of phobias because of the sort of stigma around um, intellectual disability. So replacing transphobia with transmesia because, well, partly from the disability angle and partly because we're not talking about um, necessarily a fear of queer people, a fear of trans people. We're talking about a hatred of queer people and trans people. So it sort of gets at that a little bit more directly, I hope. So I've tried to start using it. I don't always use it. It, it sort of depends on the audience. But when I'm writing blog posts where I feel like the audience is a bunch of, you know, Critlib type librarians and library workers, I try to use it. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's that. That's that's my take on it anyway. Yeah. I have used that term and find it like homoesia, transmesia. I find those to be at least like in a nuanced conversation more useful um, in actually describing the behaviors and the attitudes than the terms like transphobia, transmusic. Um, so, yeah. I just call them hateful assholes. Yeah, most trans people I know, including disabled trans people, don't use it. But I definitely agree that it the definition fits more. Can I say something really quickly about the specific book in question? No. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, okay. Well, because I think it will lead into um, what we're discussing as well. So, you know, most most transmedia or transphobia and i'm not trying to be like a um well these people get people mad at them more and that's better like kind of thing um i'm not trying to be one of those those trans guys but like overall most um vitriol towards trans people in the public light is towards trans women and trans feminine people this book however irreversible damage is specifically about trans men and transmasculine people because it's um the craze seducing our daughters is the tagline of it so it's this whole book especially that sort of comments on the sort of rapid onset gender dysphoria that isn't real and has been disproven um that seems to affect our young daughters and so it seems like a book that very much is trying to protect white womanhood especially white motherhood and it's seeing like trans masculine people as a threat 
to like the cover of the book is a young girl with a circle cut out where her womb would be <laughs> if it tells you anything about the book like it's a little like uh, dick and jane type girl illustration and she's got a hole cut out of her uh in her abdomen that's Subtle. distasteful as fuck yeah so that it, that book specifically is um sort of a like the trans people are transing our daughters you know who are only doing this because misogyny kind of thing so libraries being like no we have to have this because intellectual freedom is in fact just supporting this like fascist idea of protecting white womanhood so that women can become mothers so just wanted to like clarify that for people like the specific intention of this book (laughs) yeah no that's good i forgot to say anything about the book (laughs) yeah so the play we're, we're all sort of familiar with by these if edgelords which i believe the phrase was coined by Bree. so i'm going to give her credit she seems to be very I, I asked her if she really came up with the term so she seems pretty happy to take ownership of coming up with the term if edgelords so uh, i'm going to stick with that and the playbook was you know what you consider like libraries need to be neutral libraries should be warehouses where every book lives And interestingly, they argue this is somehow prior restraint, which is disingenuous and just patently not true because it's not what prior restraint means. Like the books are published, like you just, no one's forced to buy them. Uh, And Sam, you point out that it's a completely disingenuous point that they're making in order to tie in the state. Can you talk a little bit about CFLA and moral panics and and sort of as you brought in thatcherism sure so the reason the reason i mentioned thatcherism specifically is because so i'm doing a political theory dissertation on intellectual freedom its sort of own intellectual background which is all of the people that the kind of dominant if people refer to like john stuart mill or habermas But I'm looking a lot at the work of Stuart Hall, who was a a cultural theorist and sociologist, who wrote a lot about the way that in the transition to neoliberalism in the 70s, there was kind of a, a dominant Marxist view that what was going on was could simply be described in terms of of class struggle and class relationships, that the working class wouldn't be bought off by or or seduced by Thatcher because they would understand that that what neoliberalism was doing in terms of austerity, in terms of precarity, cutting back the social safety net and the welfare state um, went against their interests. And Paul <laughs> made the point that, in fact, what Thatcherism did prior to getting prior to Thatcher getting elected in 1979, that the Thatcherite wing of the Conservative Party had gone to great lengths to build up an ideological project of support. So to win people, win, you know, the, the silent majority, which is the Nixon's term, win the silent majority over to its conservative project. And one of the main ways that it did that was by creating a series of moral panics in Britain, mainly around race. And so Hall argues that a, a particularly kind of homegrown 1970s kind of racism develops uh, in England at the time, which was used both to get uh, white voters to back up the, the Thatcherite wing of the conservative party, but also for a, to increase uh, funding and militarization of the police. 
And Hall calls that uh, Britain drifting into a law and order society. And a lot of that resonates with me, with things that we've seen in the last decade or so around police expenditure, uh, police armament, and then the demonization of, of others. So what I've been saying in recent blog posts is that there's clearly a worldwide moral panic going on around trans people, which is essentially trying to do the same thing that the moral panic around black crime was trying to do in Britain in the 70s. And secure, as Jay said, secure the support of various sections of the white cis population, basically, for political purposes. And what I try to argue in terms of libraries and intellectual freedom is that libraries and library associations are playing into these hands. They are, they are wittingly or unwittingly completely complicit in this project. Uh, and they don't see it because they don't want to see it and because they don't engage with any of the criticisms that are coming. And that's that's true in, in the U.S. and it's true in Canada. So that, that's where the kind of moral panic, Thatcherism, uh, CFLA pieces come together, I think. You summarized it in a couple of your pieces as, as saying uh, there's people we are allowed to other and then the library sort of just says, oh, yeah, well, um, it turns out trans people's rights are up for debate and therefore uh, we should be collecting materials on this. And so there's there's only certain people you get to do that to uh, as time goes by. But the group can change and it's it's more or less uh, constructed in the moment for political convenience. It, it could be circular for all we know. I wore my this is the age of sin trans shirt today just for the occasion. <laughs> Reject the order of creation, baby. Yeah, and and I mean, we've seen this before. Obviously, we saw it with Black people in, in Britain in the 70s. We saw it with gay people in the 80s. Uh, in Canada, we've seen it with Indigenous people going back decades. You know, and, and it is circular. It is a cycle where we might go through a period where Indigenous people, for example, are not demonized as a socially disruptive other in Canada, and then they're brought back to play that role again. And that's constructed by the media, it's constructed by libraries, constructed by schools. So sometimes, you know, a new player enters the scene or enters the discourse. And sometimes we just go back to a, an old tried and true group that it's safe to other, for sure. And then so how do we tie in for people who might not have read your work yet, but they should, so they understand the context of this, this conversation. How are we tying in this Intellectual freedom, don't tread on me, please no steppy, treadent people, and their connection to the police and to government institutions. How do we make that connection clear to people? Isn't it a contradiction? That's what people would say. Oh, um, I mean, I think it's been interesting throughout the pandemic. You see a lot of even left-wing people, when faced with a crisis, a lot of times the only option that they can see as available is state power, right? So when when you don't know how to enforce something socially, a lot of people have this reaction that they look for state power. And that's sort of complicated or you know made a bit more interesting by the fact that what we might think of in the, the, the kind of global North and West as authoritarian countries like China and Vietnam have had a better, or at least in the beginning, had a better pandemic response than the, the so-called liberal democracies of the West. Um, and so there, there's a sense in which whenever these crises come up, we've been ingrained by the, the longstanding state and police machine to say, well, the only way to respond to this is through more state power and more police power. And, and I think that these this construction of consent plays off that 
kind of easy answer, I guess. And so the people who feel that the social order is being disrupted, feel that their natural or God-given rights are being threatened, it makes sense for them to look at the look to the police and the state to protect them because they've had the police protecting their rights basically forever. And and that and I think there's a note in in the podcast notes here that problematizes this whole question of rights, which we also need to dig into at some point um, because that too, like referring to the state and the police as the solution to social problems, that too becomes kind of an easy answer that doesn't really get us any further. If that makes sense. Yeah. We can definitely talk about like the, the liberal and socialist conceptualization next, but I'm just trying to make it concrete. So in a situation where, for instance, I think there were several events that you mentioned where people were protesting the author or other TERFs, and it's it, it responds I believe with, the plural is TERFs. TERFs? Well, I've also seen that on Twitter, so that TERFs... Also, they're not really feminists. Like I mean, I that's a no true Scotsman arg- yeah. argument. I would they are there's no feminism there, but they hate being called it, and I love it. Yeah, I um, but <laughs> I really seen, do actually. I would say the use of turfs. I, I've seen that a lot. So that turfs keyword searching turf on Twitter like won't see exactly. that. Then well, so. don't tell them our secrets. Yeah. But that's what well, that's what I've seen. There, like Turvin is what I've I've seen a lot of trans women use, <laughs> like the Elvin, but worse. Yeah, the, like the the, 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 Turvin. the, the Torvin. <laughs> yeah, or, or like toxin, like oxen. Yeah, trans. Uh, yeah, we've we've drifted too far. But they they you know they did the thing where they call the police to say you can't at me more more or less. Uh, whole society of people who don't want to be criticized for for saying that a group of people can't exist uh, or shouldn't exist or should be medicalized out of uh, existence. So I don't bring this up as a like, but slippery slope argument, but with the concept, like bringing policing into this, and I was wondering if Sam maybe had any thoughts and maybe you've spoken about this elsewhere in your writing and I've missed it. Something I always worry about is I'm not like, a, oh, well, we can't do this because blah, 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 blah. But like, for example, in instances where universities have sort of listened to protests and be like, okay, well, we will stop inviting certain people to campus that always gets like turned against like Palestinian speakers and whatnot, because it's disruptive and whatnot. And so like, I always have this concern of, are the people enforcing these things the same sort of ideological bent that I am? Or is this another thing that's going to be weaponized against other people, especially if any form of policing it or enforcing it is involved? And I'm not saying the solution to that is like free for all, collect everything. But I was just wondering, like, especially with, you know, Justin bringing up the concept of like policing this, the concept of, oh, well, in our collection development, we don't allow this or we remove this. How do you see a way of like protecting against weaponizing that, I guess? I mean, it probably connects with, with what Justin's asking. So my view of the problem is that when we have a, a, power, a power structure, when we have a university administration uh, or the state or the police force, and we look for them to tiebreak, essentially, we look for them as the kind of the arbiter of what's going to be allowed and what isn't. And so then no matter which way they they decide, whether it's the way that we agree with 
or the way that we don't agree with, you end up in this position where the decision is enforced on you know whoever constitutes the society under them, whether it's the student body or society at large. And that to me is where the problem is. All of this, if, if we had a real difference of opinion among equals between uh, what kind of Palestinian material to collect or what kind of trans material to collect, and we didn't have this overarching power dynamic, power structure, then we could work it out for ourselves in a way that you know we were, we were satisfied with. And that might mean some people leave the, the group, that might mean you know whatever it means. But at least we would take direct responsibility for it. And the problem that I see is that when we don't have that and we have an authority that we can refer to, we do refer to that authority. The authority makes a decision and imposes it on the rest of us. And that's where the problem comes in. And this is why like, people get a bit weird. They don't get a bit weird. They have a bit of a weird response when I talk that way as a sort of self-confessed Marxist because they expect me to be a big socialist state person. But I'm actually on the more anarchist end of, of communism saying that we've got to take responsibility for making these decisions for ourselves. And only in that way can we avoid the double bind that, that Jay described, I think. And does that get at kind of the how the the police being kind of the, again, this kind of neutral arbiter over social social arguments or social debates, that, that kind of fits in there, right? So when you don't have a real answer to trans protesters and allies outside of Toronto Public Library, protesting a trans music speaker, you don't try to deal with it. You just call in the police, right? It's, you know, we could have tried to deal with it. We could have had discussions. There were ample opportunity, but the government and the police and the library never listened to anyone. They just made their decision and imposed it. It's like the library board of trustees or whatever it was, was also in like a police role and that as well. Like not just the actual cops that were there, but like taking away from like the actual library workers. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's where the collection development piece comes in, which is when CFLA puts out a statement saying this book should be included no matter what, then all of a sudden library workers' abilities to make collection decisions is taken away from them, right? Now, no library worker is going to be able to say, well, for all kinds of information literacy, you know, relevance, harm questions, we still can't refuse to collect this book because the CFLA is said not to. Not that they have any actual power over library decisions, but you know, like the ALA, they kind of exercise a hegemony over us. Even though we can refuse to collect other things. <laughs> That's the kicker, right? We refuse to collect yeah. certain things all the time. That is in fact what selection means. Yeah, like I love the the point that you make and I think I had also I don't know if I made the point after reading you or not probably, but that like this sort of like you know, in like some sort of ideal world we might be able to have something from a viewpoint but like we don't have unlimited money nor do we have unlimited space (laughs) and so like this idea is like flawed like we can't have that to begin with just because it's physical spaces and even digital um, requires like servers and stuff absolutely and and it it's kind of a long-standing you know leninist idea that in a class society that that kind of equality of collection or universality can't exist because you live in a class society and when you add in all of the other structures of oppression and difference, that just makes the problem worse, right? We can't neutrally try to collect everything in a patriarchal society, in a white supremacist society, in a trans music society, for for the exact same reasons that we couldn't when we were only thinking in terms of class. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and Sadie's point about, like, that's not a collection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that clicked it for me. The state power comes in when the library is saying, well, you know, my dad said we have to collect turf shit, so 
um, it's that's how it relies back into the 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 institutional power and stuff like that. So I think that made the connection clear in my head. Hopefully, it helped for other people. So let's talk about this: the liberal and socialist conceptions of rights, which was rights that are given to us, and and you mentioned God given earlier. Versus rights that are that are continually fought for, and I think I saw a tweet today where someone said, "You know, the civil rights struggle is the civil rights struggle of our time. It's it's ongoing. It's a relation, not a not a legal thing." Yeah. So th- there's a we have a sort of performative in that in that J.L. Austin Judith Butler sense. We have a performative way of talking about rights where, on the one hand, it seems as though if we simply say it, you know, if we simply say housing is a human right, that that will somehow make it true in the world, that that all we need to do is say it and that the actual political and social reasons why there are unhoused people will go away. And I think to me that comes out of the liberalism was based originally on this idea of natural law and natural rights. Um, to things like private property and, and individual, you know, self-agency and that kind of thing. But that got, liberalism couldn't really depend on that at the end of the Second World War for all kinds of reasons. And so they came up with the the idea that, well, we'll have a UN Charter of Rights, uh, sort of based on the French Revolution rights, and we will grant those to people, right? That will be an, an indication that those are things that we, the the global governing liberal elite, will grant to people. And everybody, you know, once we say that those are in effect, then they're in effect and everyone can stop worrying. People won't have to struggle for rights. Uh, States will be required to ensure those rights and everything will be hunky-dory and the the nice liberal order can proceed. And Hall, again, makes the point that um, that was never the case, that the rights enshrined in the UN Charter of Rights uh, had just been fought for um, in a certain extent by go, living through the First World War, the Depression, the Second World War, and that the liberal order was threatened by a bunch of people, the vast majority of the planet, who felt that they didn't have any rights. And so they had to come up with this, this way of doing it. And as things like the civil rights movement showed, rights aren't simply granted by a liberal state. They constantly have to be fought for. Once they are won and enshrined in a law, the state is always looking to go back on them or undermine them. And so they constantly have to be fought to be secured. And Hall says that's a difference, that there's a liberal and a socialist way of thinking about rights. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a socialist way of thinking about rights. I think there's kind of a a vast swathe of, of social justice movements, which aren't necessarily socialist, which have that idea of rights as constantly needing to be struggled for. But also, I don't think every socialist thinks that. I think there are certain amounts certain you know tendencies within socialism that would also like to believe that that if we simply claim a right verbally that that will be it and and uh, or if a right is recognized by the state that that's it that's end of story and i mean you know the overturning the sort of quiet not quiet quiet's the wrong word but the sort of backhanded overturning of roe versus wade is is kind of the classic example of this right we know that the right in the us has had this on in its sights for decades They've been waiting for the moment. They've been preparing to struggle for it. They succeeded. And yet on the left, there was kind of this idea that, um, and obviously not throughout the entire left and definitely not among most feminist groups, but there's definitely an idea among certain proportions of the population that once Roe v. Wade was enshrined in a court decision, that was it. It could never be undermined. And we have a similar thing in Canada around abortion and around guns. 
because we have different, because the history here is a little bit different, but it follows a similar pattern for sure. Yeah, you can't do an abortion with a gun. I just thought, I thought it was weird how you linked those two together. I just got the Not idea of like, oh. Justin. <laughs> yeah. I just got the idea of like using like, like abortions as like, uh, like bullets or something. I just think of that little, little hot dog that was made into a person and someone's like, that's abortion. <laughs> it reminds me of when, um, when there was the like, you know, Biden won the election, but is Trump going to actually leave when it, the time comes around? Everybody's like, but the, you know, all of the government will come kick him out if he doesn't. And I was like, you know, rights are rights and laws are only as effective as we enforce them. Right? <laughs> like if we just decide not to enforce that rule, it's not like God's going to come down and be like, get out of here. Like, so, yeah, that's what this is reminding me of. It's like these things are only as valid as we enforce them to be. Yeah. And I think that's um, th- there's a, a political tradition of thinking in terms of constituent power where the government, the state would love it if constituent power, constituent power is needed to give legitimacy to a constitution. But once that happens, they would love it if constituent power could just go away and everyone could just trust the state to take care of its own you know, business. But that in fact, constituent power, right, the, the requirement for all of us to take responsibility and if necessary, you know, enforce what we think the right should be or enforce what we think the law should be devolves to us again in, in moments of political crisis. And so, you know, if the January 6th storming of the Capitol hadn't been resolved in the way that it was, potentially the multitude of constituent power in the U.S. and North America might have had to step in and institute its own status quo. We're doing good on time. So I, I'm going to ask about the CFLA letter and John Kay, who was was sniffing around. And I had to, <laughs> had to make sure we didn't end up in a cool ad article with a bunch of like assholes sending us DMs. But what was the letter? Because I never saw it. And what was uh, what was the response to it? So I don't think that whole thing has been wrapped up yet. I'd have to check with some people who were involved. And while I would like to give them credit, I think I maybe also don't want to name them on the podcast just because of the attention that potentially that could garner. It's possible to find out who was involved in the writing of the letter, and I think they did great work. So after the CFLA put out its statement on supporting the irreversible damage, the library supporting libraries and not giving in to challenges to irreversible damage. And as I said earlier, Lindsay McCallum noted that there was a pattern to the selectivity of uh, CFLA statements on intellectual freedom. A group of librarians decided to write an open letter, and they took uh, you know, a week or so to draft what I think was a really clear argument against, both against being, you know, the, the inclusion of Schreier's book on professional collections development grounds and on the CFLA's very selective stance on intellectual freedom, backed up with all kinds of evidence. I mean, it had it had as many footnotes as an academic article supporting its points. It was really well done. And so it was circulating for signatures. Uh, and over the few days that it was up, um, I think it got nearly 300 signatures. I think that's the right number. So quite a lot. And one of the things that I think we were, those of us who signed the letter were hoping is quite often, you know, the ALA, Office of Intellectual Freedom, or the CFLA are able to say, well, uh, the people criticizing intellectual freedom don't understand it, and they're a minority anyway. And so the idea that 300 librarians in Canada 
and you know we have way fewer librarians and library workers in Canada than in the U.S. 300 people were prepared to put their name on this open letter, indicated that this was a real, there was a real difference of opinion here among professionals. So this wasn't just, you know, a handful of SJWs. This wasn't just a, a small minority of, of people in the library community in Canada. This was a sizable number. And John Kay, who uh, is uh, a journalist, I think, um, and is part of that group around Quillette, Quillet, and so whatever right-wing, weird, conspiracy, free speech group circulates around that, he, he got a hold of it. He heard about the letter, and he essentially sicked uh, his Twitter followers onto it, basically saying, you know, flood it with garbage and make it unusable and break it. DDoS it, essentially. Which they started to do, at which point the organizers of the letter had to make the letter signing private, which, of course, like make the letter private and take down the ability for people to add their names. And then I think the plan was to submit it to CFLA. Uh, it was it. It was directed at the CFLA board um, because one of the things that the Intellectual Freedom Committee has been clear about is that they their statements come out basically they're solicited by or controlled by or approved by the board. So it's really the board that is taking responsibility for the, the intellectual freedom statement. So the letter was aimed at the board. It had to be taken down so quickly that a lot of people were surprised. You know, they'd seen it, talked about, they couldn't find the letter. But also, it meant that we probably didn't get an, as many signatures on it as as we could have. But we still got a sizable number. So, I don't think that we've heard anything from the CFLA. I suspect we won't, just because that's the nature of intellectual freedom debate in Canada. Uh, I, I don't think they'll even acknowledge it. If they do, that would be great. Uh, but that's that's the story of the CFLA letter. Um, and I think we're kind of waiting for potentially the other shoe to drop. Yeah, I thought it was pretty. Um, so I had to ask around who this dude was, and I, I thought it was pretty funny that he he basically, as far as I understand, and you don't have to comment on this because I know libel laws are different in your country, but he basically rode his mom's coattails into journalism, and I think it's really funny that the best he managed even doing that was Quillette. There was something a few years ago. Uh, where he was part of a group of Canadian writers, if I remember this rightly, it was Canadian writers claiming their right to write from any perspective, um, right? So essentially to adopt, let's say, an Indigenous persona while writing. And that caused a minor stir here. But I think that drove a certain number of those those writers to sort of go full right wing, more or less. And I think he was part of that group. He's, he's probably a bigger deal in Canada. I mean, he's not a huge deal, but he's a bit of a deal in Canada. More better known, probably not known in the States at all. No, I'd never heard of him. But we, you, we've, we've skimmed on the topic of talking about how, you know, if you don't have collection development, it, it's just a warehouse, you just have everything. And it undermines the judgment of library workers to, you know, take ownership for this is why I'm, I'm purchasing this thing. And this is why I'm not purchasing this other thing. How does that tie into populism and the whole concept of populism as you started fleshing it out and, and talking about populism and reactionary movements? Could you give us a, like a rundown of populism? I don't know if that's too broad. <laughs> it might be a bit broad. <laughs> how, do, how does populism pull into this intellectual freedom debate? So one of the things that I noticed as I was reading Hall is in the last... Uh at least since 2016, with the election of, of Trump and 2019, the election of Boris Johnson, 
there had been there was an explosion of discussion in in political science circles around populism and specifically right wing populism. And so you have Viktor Orban in Hungary, you've got Lukashenko in Belarus, you've got Putin in Russia, all of whom, like Johnson and Trump, take on a, a right wing populist view or persona or attitude where basically they say, we're on your side against the government. We're on the side of, you know, guns, the flag and apple pie or whatever the American national symbols are. You, you brought up common sense, like common sense is what we're fighting for. We're fighting for yeah. common sense. And that's how you can yeah. say that trans people are not trans. Yeah. So, so these populist leaders will say that we're defending, you know, a kind of realistic common sense view of the world against a liberal conspiracy to destroy your values and your way of life. Um, and they all do it from with slightly different details, right? Putin will do it slightly differently than Boris Johnson, but essentially that's the playbook. And when I was reading Hall, Hall made the exact same argument about Thatcher and Reagan, that they did the exact same thing. Thatcher was able to say, we are going to protect your English way of life against the liberal conspiracy to flood English streets with black immigrants, right? It essentially was, was the, the original Thatcherite line on, on immigration. And, and, and you know, lots of right-wing figures in Britain took that line. And so I think that the intellectual freedom piece ties into that. It only ties into it indirectly in a way. Intellectual freedom says it's up to everybody to come up with their own common sense, which seems like a sort of laudable idea, right? Everybody's going to make their own intellectual explorations. They're going to make come to their own conclusions, et cetera, et cetera. But without a power analysis, without an understanding of the political realities, that neutral line, the same as always, becomes part of whatever political project is going on. So if the political project is the extension of authoritarian right-wing populism, intellectual freedom will be used to support that. And it's it's kind of an empty signifier or a, a, a piece of silly putty that can be shaped into whatever the dominant political project happens to be at the time. And the dominant political project for the last five years in North America has been right-wing populism. And, and it's, again, I think that's why I know there are some librarians here who think that groups like the CFLA or people like the public library CEOs absolutely know that they are, that they are participating in this project of the entrenchment of right-wing populism, I'm not sure. I I tend to think that they're doing it unwittingly, that they just haven't really thought too much about their position. And so they're being taken advantage of. They're being used as shills for the right. But that, that's how those pieces connect for me anyway. Yeah. People who imagine they have no ideology tend to tend to do that. Absolutely. And, and having no ideology is the liberal thing. Yeah. God is in his heaven. Yeah, I think you can draw a straight line because I just did on my notes with a pencil from the you know protecting common sense to rejection of authority because in like you said it sounds like everyone's making up their own mind but it actually takes away accountability from from us to make our own decisions as library workers and say I'm going to select this because it's what our community needs and you know it's I'm not going to select this because it's garbage and it's hateful and it's probably going to even cause harm to someone. And so you you reject what limited authority you have as a as a librarian selecting books in favor of this common sense, which is uh, somehow independently, but not really independently come to. It's actually just a reflection of the status quo. And people who don't have ideology have common sense. 
And I think my main beef with the dominant intellectual freedom position is that it still holds on to this idea that the world is composed of individuals who must be allowed to make all their own decisions and choices and rejects any idea of social construction, the fact that we are born into a society that pre-exists us, and we take on all kinds of cultural and linguistic and ideological and intellectual positions, either straight or we react to them uh, and take the opposite or something like that. We're constructed by the society that we're born into. And they they refuse to even engage with the idea of, of social construction. So something that you've brought up through this whole conversation is this idea of like, if we say it, you know, there's this idea that if we say it, it will make it so, or you know, things along that line. And I was wondering if you had any opinions or had seen any discourse happening around like the role of magical thinking in this sort of like ideology free, intellectual freedom idea of like, well, if we, you know, say, well, people have the right to check out whatever they want for whatever reason, you know, we hope it's for a good reason. And by thinking that that makes it so, or if we say we have this right, then it, it makes it so. So I didn't know if any, if you were, I see Justin has his hand up now about like the role of magical thinking in this discussion. Is this another thing that we can blame on Harry Potter? Absolutely. <laughs> that's all I had to say. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's a really great question. I don't think I've seen anything specifically framing it in that way, but it's it seems so obvious that, you know, let's say nice suburbanite white liberal people are living in a in a kind of fantasy utopia where not only do they think things are a certain way, but they think that if they say it, yeah, exactly. If they think that they say it, that that'll make it that way. And and I think that's kind of at the, the heart of the Karen, you know, speak to a supervisor meme, right? That that those are the magical words that will solve all the problems and make the world go back to that, that that'll will restore order to a universe that has become disordered for that person, right? Something has happened. The world doesn't go according to plan. And the magical words of, you know, let me speak to your supervisor are the, is the incantation that will restore order to things. And a lot of this comes back to that common sense social order. And Hall has this great quote in, he has a, an article, I think called, I think it's in The Whites of Their Eyes about the role the media plays in the construction of this fantasy utopia, including aspects of the liberal conspiracy and aspects of crime. Because every utopia, every every Garden of Eden needs a snake, right? And so the, the media will go to great lengths to make sure that it constructs this properly. And at one point he says, regular people, ordinary people, the, the silent majority, are being forced to say that black is white. And he was writing that in like 1981 or something like that. But all that whole idea that, you know, people in middle America are being forced to not say Merry Christmas or are being forced to say that a thing is its opposite is, is part of this. It's the exact same liberal conspiracy playbook that, that Hall was writing about in the 70s and 80s is back now. It's just the... The thing that people in their kind of comfortable common sense land are being forced to lie about in their view has changed. And that's socially disruptive. And that that is a, a terrifying thought that the world is crumbling all around them. All of their certainties are being erased. Every truth is being turned on its head. 
and then and then when when they feel that their their comfortable truths and their certainties are being destroyed, then they look to the police to come in and restore order. That that's kind of how all that ties back together. Cool. So let's get to the action oriented part. What is to be done? And I put just dealing with IF edge lords in general. I figure like ignoring them is pretty good. Blocking them on Twitter is pretty fun. Yelling at them, calling them assholes is fun. But if we wanted to be like actually constructive and serious, how do we focus agitation or how do we focus organization? Any ideas, Sam? I think I actually think and I, it probably doesn't feel this way in the U.S. because you have so many more people involved, but the, the Canadian library community is small enough. I think we're actually starting to see some change. I think we're starting to see some movement. I think enough people have been hammering on these points now for so long, and the and the context is becoming clearer and clearer, right? The fact that 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 the challenging of the of the Shire book, for example, isn't happening in some kind of vacuum, that, that it is happening in a in a wider context of anti-trans uh, hate, things like that, is becoming so unavoidable. I think we're starting slowly to see some movement on that up here. But that's being done by kind of individual people hammering at things, trying to get into conference programs and that kind of thing. So it's all very like academic and intellectual. At the Toronto Public Library, um, when Megan Murphy was booked to speak, there was a, a really big protest about a thousand people, I think, were there, if not more. It was a peaceful protest, uh, and at one point they they staged a read-in, and the fact of the read-in made me connect it to grassroots pressure on Winnipeg Public Library in in the same year. Winnipeg Public Library had instituted airport-style security yeah, there in the heart of downtown Winnipeg, which has, uh, I think, it still has the largest urban Indigenous population in Canada huge racism problems, huge socioeconomic inequality problems. And what they decided to do for staff and public safety was to implement security, which would essentially mean that poor Indigenous people couldn't come into the library. And uh, some of the people in the group that were really pushing hard on w, uh, on Winnipeg Public Library to change this policy, there were some library people, there were some academics, there were some community members. Um, and one of the academics, my understanding is that her area is in, you know, social justice organizing and labor organizing and that kind of thing. And they did a talk at the Canadian Association of Professional Academic Libraries Conference uh, earlier this year, where they talked about the results of that organization and the kinds of things that they had thought about. And I think it's that. I think that in addition to sort of the, the intellectual struggle that some of us are undertaking in conferences and in journal articles and stuff like that. There is also space for uh, real grassroots organizing for specific things. So the group in Winnipeg, which is called Millennium for All, had a specific goal, which was to get the gates, security gates taken down. And that they pursued that single-mindedly through the course of the year and eventually got it done. And I think it's that. I think it's um, that kind of organizing around very specific goals, which will potentially then further the larger strategy of what we want to see. I mean, this is typical, you know, left-wing organizing. This is typical labor organizing talk. And I'm not well-versed in this. I'm not as well-versed in this as I should be. But there are lots of people in the library world who are. And so I think it's that. I think in, in terms of the, the action-oriented question, uh, that's what we need to be doing. Um, but but I, I, I totally am not the person to know how to get that going. There's some book about libraries and union organizing is a historical one and I'm looking at the looking for the title right now. So 
Yeah, something I heard recently was the the real way to make organizing this. I think it was specific to like libraries and and academia was you you not are just going to focus on old fashioned labor organizing, but you're also going to get the community involved. If you're a teacher, you're getting the students involved. You're getting everyone on your side about this issue. Uh, and that's how you're going to build momentum rather than just like, oh, we will have one big strike and we'll, you know, as much. I am a member of the IWW, but I don't think there is going to be a one big strike. It's uh, not going to happen. But you can get a community together and, and say, look, we're all doing this for our collective benefit. This is what we want. And then I'll put that link that Jay found in the notes. Yeah, I think I own this book, but I haven't read it. But um, so if it's like garbage, let me know. <laughs> it's uh, in solidarity, academic librarian, labor activism, and union participation in Canada. Um, it seems to be an edited volume. Yeah, as soon as Sam said that, I was like, wait a minute, there's a book about that. I think so. Yeah, Justin, what you were saying just reminds me of something um, Allison Macrina said in the Library Freedom Project crash course was, it's really all about relationships. Like, if, if you can't get it done now, then maybe you should refocus on the relationship building around it to actually get that community part first before the organizing kind of deal. So yeah, I think those are really good, really good points. Uh, I don't know if, if much of this is filtered into American library discourse, but in Canada, that, that aspect of relationality and relationship building is huge in not just in Indigenous activism, but also in sort of research by and with and about Indigenous people is that, that whole sense of relationship building. And so that's what we need to be able to bring that in to all of these levels of, of discussion and action. But of course, the alienation of capital means the alienation of capitalism means that it's increasingly difficult for us to build any of those kinds of relationships. So we're struggling against the grain, but that's what struggle is. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Jay. Yeah. The, the thing that I was going to say is, um, you know, I think at least in like, I don't want to say popular, but sort of like, I guess, mainstream leftism and social justice activism, there's this tendency to sort of organize against broad ideas and ideology, um, which like, Yes, but also it's really hard to see any sort of material gain in that when we're just like, facts, facts, facts. And then that largely like, you know, we believe in science. It's like, okay, those other people don't. <laughs> um, you know, we're kind of not, I don't want to say meeting them where they're at, but, you know, they've already heard us say this. And so like this move towards like, no, we're going to organize against this very specific local issue that can have like, we can see when we've succeeded. Like, that sort of very, I, I wouldn't call it direct action, but it's very sort of focused, you know, you do things on a local level and you actually see the material benefit from it instead of this more broad, we need to campaign against X thing and it's just hard to see any results and then people lose morale or like, why are we doing this? Or you get into like black pill territory and stuff. And I think that it is good to have people within those movements who can contextualize and who can connect the dots and do that kind of m more theoretical or, or meta yeah. work as well. But it, but it has to be a dialectic. You can't have the intellectual people talking about that stuff in the absence of an actual movement for concrete material gains. And, and I think this is kind of the, the Bolshevik argument. You can't have the concrete material gains 
on their own without some kind of larger political project. That's that's kind of Praxis, uh, baby. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean that's what the unions a lot of unions have essentially accepted that model, right? That they'll they'll take concrete material improvements in wages or benefits or whatever, but they won't link it to a political project. Uh, and then therefore it just defangs the whole the whole process. This got me thinking about some of the work I've been doing with the Abolitionist Library Association and just getting goals straightened out and how do you explain these things simply and how do you do agitation? Because we just had this whole conversation to kind of work out the problem with the abs- the intellectual freedom absolutism. And I think maybe one of the things going forward is finding a way to make this concrete for people and, and make them see no, this this is not actually common sense. This is uh, something masquerading as such, and it's it will in some way affect you. Like some someday you will not be the person with the common sense or something like that. I mean, we don't have to figure it out today. We're wrapping up anyway. But if anyone else has any ideas or slogans, chants, and wants to make some uh, wants to make a sign, I think they should do that. Please, no steppy. Yeah, no steppy. <laughs> We went this whole episode and I couldn't figure out a point to use. I was so ready to use this drop and I couldn't use it. Gender? What is this? Soviet Russia? <laughs> Gender? Hardly know her. That's what we should end on. Okay. That's Sam's new catchphrase. <laughs> yeah, that was Sam talking just perfect. now. He's a, yeah. he's, a, he's a great, perfect Daffy Duck impression. <laughs> Thanks for coming on again, Sam. Did you want to plug anything? And otherwise, we'll have your your Twitter info, everything, and all the articles we're referring to, all your blog posts. I have nothing to plug. I have no SoundCloud. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on. I'm You're not going to feeling... advertise Galaxy Lights in the in the reply to the tweet. <laughs> you have to get paid to that. <laughs> you're doing you're doing this backwards, Jay. <laughs> they have to offer you money first. <laughs> okay. Well, good night.